Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Thank you, Dr. Sarah DeFrancesco, for being with us today. I'm so excited to have you. I'm so excited to be here and dive into this topic. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I always love to ask everybody how they came to do, you know, you're, you're doing naturopathy, so you're um, a naturopathic doctor as well as an acupuncturist. So I'm curious how you got into this line of work. Yeah, so um, for me, it came through emotional healing and, um, you know, having experiences when I was younger that drove me to look into other modalities of healing than what I was taught about, you know, conventional medicine. I think we all start there and then we go, Hey, what else is there? And so I learned about naturopathic medicine and Chinese medicine. And I chose that as my work because, you know, there's, there's, so much healing we can do for our body that is good for our brain and then our mood and emotions. And there's also so much that we can do from an emotional and mind-body perspective to heal our nervous system and really help our body. So, you know, because in conventional medicine, these things are really separated, I really devote my work to, you know, informing people and educating people about all the tools that they have so that they can really be in the driver's seat of their health and of their emotions. And when we look at this and the mind-body connection, anything we do for the body is going to help the mind. Anything that we do for the mind is going to help the body. And when I started out in medical school, I would love to say, oh, that was the turning point and everything just got better from there. It was quite the opposite for me. That was my health crisis in medical school. I developed anxiety and panic attacks and it was very scary and it was something that uh, there was a family history. So there was a genetic condition, but I didn't know what was going on and neither did anyone in my family. And um, so I had to just many nature's chiropractors, acupuncturists, and they all try to help me calm my nervous system. Um, but no one put all the pieces together to look at why was this happening in the first place. And for me, it was a history of celiac disease in my family. So I'm half Italian, very common with Italian heritage. Um, but also I had had a traumatic brain injury and a horseback riding accident as a kid. And so when you add in all that history and the trauma to the brain, which was mild and not diagnosed as anything at the time, what few people know is as the inflammatory factors of your life, the stress, the food that's not working for you, environmental factors, they pile on and all of a sudden, the traumatic brain injury symptoms come out. So um, I was able through you know, years of working with doctors and doing my own research as a, as a medical student at the time, finally heal my anxiety and panic attacks. And, you know, that's what makes me really feel for my patients and the clients that I work with online, because it, there's so many different areas. And usually people are told, Hey, you know, um, it, you should try medication or you should try therapy, or you should try these relaxation techniques. And those are good options for people, but there's so much more 
And the patients and clients who come to me are folks who they've exhausted those options. They've tried their best and they need to dig deeper. So that's, that's my story. I've, I've lived through this. So I really, you know, feel for people who are going through it and I'm excited to share with everyone things that they can start doing immediately to feel better and give them some ideas of what they you know, might want to look into um, if they're going through something like anxiety, panic attacks, and other mood issues like depression. Yeah, that is great. I think um, the thing that stands out to me in your story is the part about you had a traumatic brain injury and then you had celiac disease, you know, or, you know, and, and that was, both of those two things were, were triggers, but since the, the head injury was so much earlier, um, that it manifested later. And I think a lot of people don't put that together. I think that's so important. So, you know, nothing should be left out of the history. Totally. And because for me, um, also as patients, so we have our own idea of what these pieces mean. So what's interesting is I always knew that the horseback riding accident was important, but to me, it was about the emotion of, you know, my life sort of taking this left turn and, you know, going through the fear and the PTSD of, you know, working with horses and having to heal that. So to me, it was more about I thought I was going to be like a horseback riding trainer and this is going to be my field of work. And this is how I spent, you know, seven days a week um, throughout my childhood. So I was focused more on the emotional cost of that. And at that time we didn't talk about, um, you know, brain injuries in this way. And I wasn't die. I had a broken jaw. So that was the focus. I had surgery. I do have a metal plate um, in my mandible on the right side and um, so it just wasn't something that was looked at. It was more fix the jaw. And I was in eighth grade, so I was very young. And it was more about, you know, get, literally get back on the horse. So I was back on the horse in six weeks after my injury. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah, that's on a couple of different levels traumatic for sure. Yeah. So when we're looking at somebody that has anxiety, um, what are you, what are you looking for? If somebody comes into your office and they, they say, I have a complaint of anxiety, it's chronic, nothing's really worked. They want to put me on antidepressants for this or Xanax, whatever it is, whatever drug or medication. Um, what are you looking at to do a workup with these patients? Yeah. So usually um, my patients and online clients who come to me, they, they've been through therapy. They've been through relaxation techniques and they're either currently on medication and it's helping, but it's not getting rid of everything and they keep increasing the dose or changing the medication, you know, with their psychiatrist or with their doctor and it's just not getting them to where they want to go. Um, so the typical things that I look at in that situation are what is going on hormonally and from a blood sugar and metabolism perspective, because often that's the thing that is completely overlooked. So while we are, you know, in, in conventional medicine focused on those three areas, what's really getting completely missed is one of the most common causes of chronic anxiety. And this is what patients will say. They'll say, 
you know, I just feel a baseline of anxiety all the time. I wake up and I'm anxious. I have trouble falling asleep. I have racing thoughts, or I might wake up in the middle of the night feeling anxious and have racing thoughts. Um, and to them, it's like, okay, there just doesn't seem like there is a trigger for this behavior. There's not something externally that is triggering it for them. They just live in this constant state of anxiety and they're doing their best to cope with that. So blood sugar plays a huge part in this. And so one tip I have for everyone listening is to make sure that you are eating a balanced diet, meaning that you have enough vegetables at every meal and that includes breakfast. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you can do is make sure that you're getting enough protein at each meal because the protein and the fiber from the vegetables can really help balance out your blood sugar. So even changing your breakfast from whatever you normally have, whether that's you know pastries or oatmeal, um, you know, something more grain based to changing it to veggies and protein can massively help. And it's important to get, you know, the blood sugar um, leveled out first thing in the morning. So breakfast is really the most uh, important um, to set the blood sugar status for the day. So the reason why I say blood sugar is because blood sugar has such a massive effect on our stress hormones. So when you experience an external stressor, you create norepinephrine and epinephrine right away, but that doesn't last very long. That's kind of the first hit of adrenaline that you get. But the thing that lasts longer and that can be chronic is cortisol. And the reason that is important is because if our blood sugar is dysregulated, it actually can create cortisol spikes through our day. And what this does is it puts us into that fight light or freeze mode. So this is one way in which we can really alter the way that we're eating. We can work with the hormones to get everything balanced again. And that can be completely game changing for people. So that is the most common issue that I see. And then the way that this plays out is that if the blood sugar and cortisol being the stress hormone is dysregulated, this can lead to sleep issues, which then wax out the blood sugar for the next day if you didn't sleep well, and that leads to more anxiety, and then that leads to poor sleep. So it's this really vicious cycle. So the first things are making sure we have balanced blood sugar, that we're calming cortisol, and that can be where these mind-body techniques come in. Um, that is where the blood sugar balancing comes in with nutrition, and making sure that we have really good sleep habits because we need to make sure that you're going to bed on time, ideally before 11 p.m. and you know, waking up sometime between 6 a.m. and 8 a.m. and keeping that really consistent because cortisol is one of the hormones that actually regulates our sleep and wake cycle. So we want our cortisol to be high in the morning and we want it to be low at night. And when it follows that pattern, that allows us to have melatonin rise at night. So cortisol is like the sun and melatonin is like the moon. So the sun has to come down so the moon can rise and you can get you know, the deep restorative sleep that you need to get. So that's one area that is really overlooked. And I think that if we had more awareness about um, nutrition and how that relates to our brain function and mood, 
we would see a lot different outcomes really worldwide because that is such a basic and fundamental step and it's skipped all the time. I 100% agree. Um, it is just so common. I, I give patients a lot of times glucometers in my office. Um, but one thing that I have seen in my own life, which has been interesting because I check my blood sugar a lot just to see what's going on with it and keep it at a pretty stable level, um, is a hundred percent correct. If I don't get enough sleep or if I'm up before 6 a.m., um, my blood sugar spikes. Um, it's just too early for my body to get up. If I watch something scary on TV, my blood sugar spikes, you know, it's that fight or flight. And if I work out too hard, my blood sugar spikes, which are common things that or are things that people don't really know will we'll do that to your blood sugar. So I think that that is absolutely just a, just a great point that you said on all of that. So when, so if we have, for example, we have somebody that has chronic anxiety, um, they have chronic anxiety and they are also, they also are a highly sensitive person. What is a highly sensitive person? Okay, so I love talking about this because for those of you who are listening, and I'm a highly sensitive person, and I think um, you, if, if this is you, then you will find this really empowering because it's, it's it, being a highly sensitive person is not a condition. It's not a problem. It's not something that we fix. It's just a different way that our brains work and it's very, very common. So it's, it's called a neurotype. So meaning it's not a disease. It's not, um, it's not something bad. It's just how some of us are wired. It's really that simple. And so this actually affects up to 15 to 20% of the general population. And the way that it affects people is your senses are more attuned to your environment. So you pick up on things that other people don't pick up on. So this can be everything from strong smells to um, loud noises or um, coarse textures and fabrics really bother some people. Um, you might feel like rattled or easily startled. Um, you might really dislike violent movies that might be too stimulating for your nervous system. And you might sometimes feel, and you know, we're recording this at an interesting, very mm -hmm. stressful time in history, right? So if you are someone who has been doing the stay at home orders and you feel like the news is too overwhelming right now and you just wanna go back to bed, you might be a highly sensitive person. Um, and so a highly sensitive person is not a fragile person. I think that in a lot of what I read about it online, people sort of frame it that way. And I don't, I don't think that that's true at all. I think that um, what's amazing about highly sensitive people is that they're very intuitive, they're very empathetic, and so you probably have these superpowers of people just open up to you. They just want to tell you everything because you make them feel comfortable. You pick up on little social cues that other people don't pick up on. So you know if someone is uncomfortable and you need to 
you know, steer clear of that part of the conversation. Or if someone is physically uncomfortable, you're going to pick up on it faster than others and, you know, get them the blanket or change the lighting or, or do what they need. Um, so being a highly sensitive person, um, it is something that the genetics of this are being studied. And so um, in the literature that we have about it, they do compare people who exhibit these highly sensitive um, traits to someone who does not. And also it's been compared to people who exhibit ADD traits or autism traits. And they look at the MRIs of these different brains and they're completely different. So with someone who exhibits the highly sensitive traits, um, these folks actually have areas of their brain that have to do with intuitive thinking and empathy are lit up on the MRI more than others who do not have those traits. So um, it's still an area that's you know, being studied. One of the best places um, that you can learn about it is hsperson.com. And that's Dr. Elaine Aaron, who is really the pioneer of this study of the highly sensitive person. And I love it because what I have noticed as, you know, as a highly sensitive person who helps other highly sensitive people um, is that when it comes to anxiety, not everyone who has anxiety is a highly sensitive person, but especially with women, I've noticed it's fairly common. And so when we clear up the inflammation and the blood sugar balance and these issues that are causing people to feel anxiety, often once that picture is cleared, what we see come through is women really stepping into their intuitive selves and really stepping into their ability to connect with others and share their gifts in those ways. So many folks who are dealing with anxiety are highly sensitive. They might be healers. They might be artists. Um, so it's, it's beautiful because we can take something like anxiety and flip it on its head and go, what are actually all the interesting and um, what are all the advantages of being anxious, right? Because if you're the anxious person, then you're going to know if there's danger there sooner rather than later than other, others around you, right? Um, and you're going to pick up on things in your environment that are important to notice. Um, so if we translate that into what's going on with the highly sensitive person, although these are two different things, it's almost like the anxious person is someone who is um, experiencing the inflammatory nature of our nervous systems being way, way too keyed up and just feeling like a raw nerve. I mean, I remember having panic attacks and just feeling totally exposed. And if you've had them and you're listening to this, you probably understand that. Whereas a highly sensitive person in balance is someone who can really own their intuition and really bring their gifts through so they can still notice things in their environment, but it's not going to cause them to feel anxious. So two different things, but we can sort of talk about them on the spectrum of nervous system health. And something I've also noticed about the way that people speak about, you know, high sensitivity and all of this is that embedded in that there are definitely ways that we can help the highly sensitive person who feels like their nervous system is being overwhelmed, which for some people is a different sensation and a different experience than anxiety. 
we can help them come into balance with the same tools that we use for people with anxiety. So a lot of what is talked about in that community is about avoidance and, you know, of course, whether it's anxiety or if you're highly sensitive, one of the first things people tend to do is go, okay, I figured out what kind of triggers this uncomfortable, uncomfortable feeling and now I'm going to avoid that. But I think we also need to look at how can we make our nervous systems more resilient so that you don't have to avoid those things. And um, you can certainly set your limits and your boundaries, but you can be more resilient. And it does, And I'm not talking about like um, toughing it out or pushing through. I'm talking about nourishing our nervous systems in a way that people can feel calm and confident and still be their intuitive empathic selves. Yeah, that's, that's really quite interesting. So what you said was if you are anxious, you may or may not be a highly sensitive person, but it sounds like more highly sensitive people will trend towards anxiety if their nervous system is out of balance. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. And that's, I don't know that we have research on that per se, but that's been my own observation. And then, you know, I can also take into account, there's a certain personality who's probably attracted to working with me, right? So that's, that's what I see in my practice. That's what I can say for sure. Sure. And do you feel like empaths and highly sensitive people are the same thing? Or are they different in your opinion? Um, you know, I, I think so. There might be some that disagree with me because, um, hmm, how should I answer this? So I think what's interesting about labels is that um, groups can identify with a label and it can be really helpful. And also then it's like, well, this is that and this is not that, right? So um, to me, my understanding and my experience, I think that when we say empath, um, we're, you know, speaking a language that was there before we started saying highly sensitive people and we started um, exploring how people's brains work who are wired in a highly sensitive way, which again, we do see that there's research on that, right? Sure. So to me, I don't think that there's, any benefit to separating them. But I think what people are saying when they say empath is I feel connected to others. I feel connected to my surroundings. I feel connected to the emotions of the people and animals. Me, And that may be one way that someone expresses that with highly sensitive, that is a huge part of it as well. But also um, with high sensitivity, you know, people do experience um, sensory overload uh, when out of balance. So, you know, someone who's highly sensitive might need to talk with, you know, their partner and their family and their environment and talk about, you know, the noise level in their house and, you know, things like that. So I don't think that people who identify as empathic necessarily always have, um, you know, those that, uh, they don't always have that experience of the sensory overload, which people with high sensitivity, that is a key uh, feature to their experience. So I guess they are a little bit different. Yeah, that's great. And with a highly sensitive person, it sounds like there potentially could be some genetic components to this from what you've seen on 
or what has been studied on the MRIs. Do you also believe potentially a portion of this is inherited from some sort of trauma, potentially head injury, childhood trauma, uh, emotionally, whatever that might be? Do you believe there's a component for that? So that's a really interesting question. So I think that we all have different types of brains, right? And we're all wired a little differently. And then so we have our 15 to 20% of the population who is estimated to there is a possibility um, that they could be more likely to experience PTSD or they could be more likely to experience, um, you know, brain, the brain inflammation that occurs with that type of physical trauma. Maybe it might affect them more. So we don't, I, I'm, I'm, you know, almost waxing philosophical on that, right? Like we don't mm -hmm. have that data, but you know, what we are starting to see, and this is separate from high sensitivity, but I want to bring this in too, is that we do now have genetic testing that can tell us about how do people produce neurotransmitters genetically. So when we do a genetic test, which is usually a saliva test, it can tell us, hey, like they actually process their neurotransmitters really well, or maybe they have trouble producing dopamine or trouble producing serotonin. Um, so that's something we can look at. And then the other piece of this is that when we produce neurotransmitters, so say you and I are both on the street and something happens that scares us, and maybe I have a really you know, high reaction to that and you have a lower reaction to that. So I might be really experiencing a lot more stress and trauma than you in that moment because genetically we react differently. So there's one difference. Now the other difference um, specifically with behavior that's really interesting is the breakdown of that neurotransmitters. So let's say there's a third person and um, they also have that really high reaction and their neurotransmitters and everything just get totally spiked and they're right there with me, right, freaking out. But let's say I go ahead and I'm able to degrade those neurotransmitters faster. So I might be okay in five minutes. Whereas if that other person is not able to degrade their neurotransmitters as quickly, genetically, that's just how they're built, they might be talking about that trauma and the crazy thing that happened to us on the street for the next month and a half. And so they may be more susceptible to trauma. So. It's really fascinating. Um, there's so many different aspects of this, and that's why I think it's really important that we start with the basics. So when I work with people, it's like, hey, we got to get nutrition and lifestyle on board. Let me see what blood sugar balance can do for your brain and your mood. And then we can get into, well, if that doesn't get us where we want to go, maybe there's something else going on. Do you have a history of you know, a traumatic brain injury? Do you have digestive issues? Do you have a history of chronic infections? All these things that through the digestive system and the vagus nerve and the gut-brain connection can be causing problems that we can clear all that. Um, and then, you know, the when we're really getting into fine-tuning things and if we're not getting all the way to where we want to go with some of these fundamentals and then the functional mm -hmm. testing and approach to balancing the brain, then I think we should really look into things like 
um, you know, these genetic markers and, you know, these things change very, very quickly. So, you know, just, it wasn't long ago that we only had 23andMe and now we have so many tests and we have a lot of um, genetic experts who are there to, you know, help clinicians like me, um, you know, do this work for people. So it's really exciting. You know, it's interesting, you know, because you brought a lot of great points up, you know, especially starting with the neurotransmitters and then kind of going down to optimize the system. But I think um, what is important to note, which I know you know this, but, you know, the blood sugar has a tremendous effect on these neurotransmitters. It yes. degrades them. And the gut has a tremendous effect on these neurotransmitters. It degrades them if you have pathogens in your gut. And the same thing with nutrition. If you can't run the pathways that are creating these neurotransmitters, you're, you're not going to make them ever, you know? So I think that's a really important point, like getting these things together and the basics of these things together. And you have to work with someone to get this fixed because there's so much that actually goes into neurotransmitters. And from my own personal experience, you can tell me what you've seen, but I run organic acids tests on a lot of folks. Um, and I would say that 95% um, do not have enough serotonin or dopamine in their system. Yeah. So, I mean, that can be really common. And then, you know, getting back to your point about like these basics being so important, mm -hmm. sometimes when we see the neurotransmitters on testing being low across the board, it's like, well, maybe they just aren't getting enough protein. So they can't actually get the amino acids they need to make these neurotransmitters. And then that becomes a much more basic fundamental question of, is it because they're not eating enough protein and we need to change the nutrition plan? Or is it because they are doing everything right in the kitchen, but they're not able to absorb it because we have inflammation or maybe we have chronic infections in the gut? So there's a lot of um, areas and we always want to make sure that we do the foundation first, as you mentioned, because we're going to have the most effect there and it's going to affect the whole rest of the body if we get the right protein levels and we get the blood sugar um, balance. So yeah, that kind of testing can be really helpful as well. Yes, I, I completely agree. So um, if somebody decides, they hear this and they're like, wow, so I think that I am a highly sensitive person. Um, what in there, like, you know, I'm trending towards anxiety. What can they do about that? Yeah. So I, I think of it this way is that there's really three steps is step number one. Um, if you are anxious, then we have to give you some tools so that you can get relief right now in this moment. Um, and so this is where our mind body tools are super helpful, especially right now with everything that we're going through. And so this is where we can get, um, you know, really basic and go to breathing exercise, um, make sure that people are moving their bodies. So remembering that um, actually when we exercise, that inhibits the amygdala, which is our fear center in the brain. And so that can actually shift you from anxiety and fear into happiness. So this is where we really want to get our mind-body tools on board. So breathing exercises, movement, nature. Um, and right now, if you're someone who you don't have access to a park right now, you don't have access to nature here in Oregon, our, um, our state parks are shut down right now. Um, you can actually put 
pictures of nature on your desktop computer, on your phones. You can put pictures of nature all around your house because you can trick your body into thinking that you're in nature. And then, you know, also just spending time if you have a little yard in the back or the front of your house and, um, you know, finding a place where it's safe to go barefoot and really grounding is really helpful because um, it's actually going to help you uh, reduce your oxidant load through the antioxidant effect. So I like to really stack these behaviors. And if someone is feeling anxious, it's like go outside, get your feet on the ground, start deep breathing, do that for a little while, do a couple squats, you know, like you can figure out what works for you. So we have to get those things on board so that people know in the moment if they feel anxious, there's something that they can do to get relief. Another really good tool um, is to go from thinking part of our brain to getting more into our senses. So, um, you know, naming five things that you can see, naming five things you can hear, naming five things you can touch, um, that can be really helpful to help if someone is getting into acute anxiety or panic. So we have to have those tools first. And then second, this is where we really have to get the nutrition and lifestyle right. So this is everything we are talking about with food and the you know balancing the blood sugar, also making sure that people have their bedrooms set up correctly and it's nice and dark in there and that we have a you know, routine of letting your body know what to expect. Same bedtime, same wake time, try to have your meals at the same time. So we get all of that nutrition and lifestyle stuff on board. That's step number two. And then step number three is really getting into um, what else could be going on. So if the mind-body techniques and the nutrition and lifestyle, um, which in my experience, this can completely relieve anxiety for a lot of people, or it can really bring it from a 10 to a two and give them immense relief. But if they need to dig more or it's just not holding for them, meaning they're getting some relief, but then they're sort of having breakthrough anxiety sometimes, that's where we want to go, okay, if you're doing everything right with your lifestyle and your, your nutrition, your mindfulness, then why would the body's blood sugar and cortisol be spiking? We have to ask ourselves these questions. And then from there, you know, I really like to dive into digestive health because having chronic inflammation in the gut and having uh, chronic infections potentially there like viruses, bacteria, fungi, um, parasites, and sometimes worms, although that one's more rare, um, th that can be one area that is causing a problem for the gut, which is then being, you know, this inflammation there is being transmitted to the brain via the vagus nerve. And it's also creating intestinal permeability and leaky gut, which is affecting every area of the body. So we always want to look at the systems that have the largest effect first. So for me, that's the gut. And when we have the gut cleaned up, now we're going to have much better blood sugar and cortisol balance. And this also gives us the opportunity to um, have the foundation to... especially if, if you're a menstruating woman and you find that your anxiety is worse between ovulation and the first day of your period, so that's the second two weeks of your period, 
if you're having anxiety, maybe some neck stiffness, um, you're feeling irritable and you're having some sleep issues in the two weeks or just the first week before your period, then that may be a sign that it's actually a progesterone imbalance. So all of this that we mentioned is going to help, but then we also have to address that directly. So once we get into that step three, it's much more individualized, doing the testing, checking out neurotransmitters, like you mentioned, the organic acids test is great. Um, I like to do a GI health panel and also hormone testing if that's necessary, and that's dependent on each person's case. So that's where we really want to get customized and find out why is this happening for that person and what is it about their history or um, or what's going on in their labs that would explain this because, you know, people don't have anxiety just because they have anxiety. It comes from somewhere. And so we have to find, does it come from trauma? Does it come from the body? Does it come from um, a crazy schedule? Does it come from external stressors? And we have to investigate all of that and find what's at the root cause for each person. Mm -hmm. I definitely appreciate the order that you're doing this in because um, the order is critical for everybody listening. Um, you have to balance out the blood sugar. You have to balance out the gut issues because you cannot fix other things if those things aren't fixed. Hormones will never stick if you have not fixed some of the things up the kinetic chain. And, you know, I think PCOS is a great example of that or polycystic ovary syndrome or disease, because if you don't fix the blood sugar and you're going and you're messing with the, you have to fix the blood sugar. And then I think address the hormones and everything else as well. But I think hormones are the second step, just like you mentioned as well. I think that that's really quite totally. important. Yeah. Or the third step and the same thing. I think you also have to call like figure out what's causing the low neurotransmitters and get to the root cause of that. And uh, it's just, it's really important to look at these things um, sis systematically. You know, I think folks are like, well, I feel depressed. I need an antidepressant. I feel anxious. I need Xanax. Well, you're never fixing the underlying cause, the underlying condition, and you're just going to feel numb and it's going to get worse. And it's just, you're not going to feel any better. So anyway, I really appreciate you yeah. saying that. And I think, um, you know, I, I want to explain just a little bit about the hormones and the gut inflammation and the cortisol, because we've mentioned cortisol a lot, but what people might not realize is that, so, you know, when you're a menstruating woman, your ovaries are making most of your sex hormones. So I'm talking about estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and your adrenals, which handle cortisol, your stress hormone that we've been talking about, they're the backup. So I think of the ovaries like the lead singers and the adrenals like the backup singers. Now, if the backup singers are too busy producing cortisol, they really can't help balance your hormones. And one of the reasons that cortisol could be high is external factors, but it also could be, and I see this all the time, internal factors like inflammation, chemicals, digestive issues. So something that in my practice, a lot of people want to jump to the hormones and it's like, Hey, you know, if we actually clean up the gut first, your hormones are going to have a much better chance. And now we can actually get in there and really do something meaningful. Whereas if we're prescribing supplements just for the hormones, um, or people are asking about bioidentical hormones right from the beginning, 
Um, in my experience, that really doesn't get us much leverage. We really have to clean up the foundational inflammation that's going on there and um, replace it with a foundation of health. Then we can get to the hormones. So thank you for mentioning that because I think that's important for people to understand. Amen. That's so important, I think. So thanks for clearing that up because that was that's that's critical. And I people just want to jump to the hormones, but as I always say it, the hormones are the first system to go out of balance and the last system to come back into balance because you don't need it to sustain your own life. So totally. And you know it. what? The hormones are like the highly sensitive person of the biology. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> the ones that are like, I sense a disturbance in the force. However minor, I'm going to react now. Yes. <laughs> so, I love that. So um, I like to ask, um, is there anything that I didn't cover that you think is important to cover? I think, um, you know, kind of just in summary of what we've been talking about is I just want people to know that, um, number one, especially in times like these, it is okay if you feel anxious or depressed sometimes. So in no way am I saying life is all rainbows and I ride in on a unicorn or something like that. <laughs> although I would love that. Um, so, you know, I think the key about mood is we want to build our resiliency so when it hits the fan, we you know, can feel our feelings and we make room for them and we can experience normal, healthy reactions that may feel like anxiety or depression or sadness. Um, and the key here is that we're building resiliency so that you can make room for your feelings and feel them and honor them without the fear of of thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to take me down for the next several weeks or next several months. So we have to just be able to um, come back to center, but also feel our feelings when appropriate. And, you know, I also just want to let people know because in conventional medicine, it's like, oh, well, you're going to be on this medication and you'll be on that for the rest of your life. And you know, if that is, if that is how you are dealing with your anxiety and that works for you, great. You know, I in no way would ever tell people that, you know, something that they're doing is wrong. Um, but what I do want people to know is that there are other things you can do. And so if that's not what you want, you do not have to be stuck with that. So there's many options for you and it is possible to heal your anxiety um, and if you're a highly sensitive person or just learning about being a highly sensitive person, um, you can also, you know, balance your brain and balance your body so that being a highly sensitive person is fun instead of overwhelming. And, you know, that is what, that's what this work is all about. And also so much of this is in your hands. It's not about the doctor's prescription or, you know, um, you, you know, following somebody else's idea of health. This is really about you discovering what works for you and your body. And especially as women in medicine, I think that is the most important thing because so many women are told that their feelings are not valid. Um, you know, basically see you next year, here's your medication. And, um, it's a system of, suppression. And what I want to see is that we create opportunities for healing for women where they can be heard, where they can be themselves. And if you have a day where you're in a mood, that's okay. Um, as long as it works for you. <laughs> so, um, 
I, I, I hope that, you know, everybody gets something that they can use out of what we've discussed today. Yeah. And I think one last point I'd like to make is the protocol you're offering or you're talking about, this is to fix a problem in your gut and then move off that supplementation or to fix this problem and then move off that supplementation. Yeah. It's to fix these underlying problems and move forward. You're not prescribing pills for the rest of somebody's life. You're, you're fixing the underlying problem, which I think is a big misnomer in natural medicine, functional medicine, alternative medicine, um, however you want to put it. But I think that that's a big misnomer that once you have depression, you're going to have to be on this pill for the rest of your life, whether it's an herbal pill or a pharmaceutical pill. And that's absolutely not the case. That's not what you're talking about here. So Yeah. Thank you for saying that because I have to retrain uh, my patients all the time because sometimes they have had an experience with um, another provider who uses supplements and does some of these tests. And it's like, oh, I'm taking these 15 things and I don't know how, if I'm supposed to take these for the next year. Um, and that can be really confusing. So, you know, when I work with people, it's like, okay, we ha we make plans for usually 30 to 60 days at a time. And we use supplements as a tool to accomplish our goal. And then once we have reached that goal, we move on. So ultimately, you know, we want people doing as much as they can through food and nutrition and lifestyle. And then at the same time, of course, you know, for most people, there's going to be a little supplementation long-term simply to fill in the gaps um, of our modern life and our modern food system. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And are there things that you do on a daily, weekly basis that you feel keeps you healthy? Yeah. So outside every day. And so I'm an animal person. I'm a horse lover and a dog lover. And so outside with my dog every day and um, getting my feet on the ground as long as it's you know warm out here. We stay mm -hmm. pretty warm in, in Portland. Um, and you know meditation. So I, I am not perfect at it. I am aspiring to be uh, daily without a flaw. Um, but as much as you can, because especially right now when everyone is at home and on their computers, and uh, I mean, I feel like in the past few weeks, I've seen everything there is to see on the internet and, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's so, so bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, bad. yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, really taking some time for yourself. So if, if you're not ready to meditate, um, go for a walk outside without your phone, um, you know, make sure that you are spending time doing something that you love. So I think what's even more important is whatever that is, if it's art, if it's yoga, if it's reading a trashy book in the bathtub, you know, whatever it is, make mm -hmm. time to do that, especially for moms who are at home right now and all of a sudden have to do the job of teacher and mom and whatever else they got going on. Um, you know, scheduling an hour at least per week and letting the whole family know and putting it on your calendar like it is a appointment with someone else. Make it with yourself and have, you know, a little self date where you get to treat yourself to at least an hour a week of just something that you 
enjoy. So for me, it's actually horses and I'm not doing that right now because of what we got going on and staying at home and all that stuff. But, um, for me, the biggest thing is really, you know, outside connecting with animals as much as I can. And, you know, I'm blessed in my work to just get to talk to awesome people, whether it's podcasting and interviews mm-hmm. or working with um, patients and long distance clients. So for me, I get a lot of that, you know, social satisfaction that way, which is great. Absolutely. And where can folks find you if they want to get in touch with you? Yeah. So um, the best way to find me is at drdfrancesco.com. That is where you will find um, all of my articles. Uh, I do have a little freebie for you guys called the Anxiety Relief Quick Start Guide. So you can download that there. And then uh, I do have a a clinic here in Portland, Oregon. We're currently all telemedicine and that is called Thriving Force. So you can find me if you're local in Oregon, we can work with you um, via telemedicine. And if you're interested in learning more about um, these anxiety uh, solutions in terms of nutrition and lifestyle, uh, I am launching a new program um, that will be out soon. And so you can learn about that at drdfrancesco.com. Um, and I'll be offering that through uh, my online business called Activate Wellness. So I look forward to sharing that with everybody. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.